Welcome, welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast presented to you from the Western Cape Pot Bunker located here in the heart of Cape Town, South Africa. This pod is presented to provide a platform and a voice for built environment professionals and interest groups who are working towards transforming the places and spaces here in South Africa. It is dedicated to those individuals and community groups that are supporting both the formal and informal processes that are shaping our cities and our spaces. So where to start? Um, There's so many different points of origins for us to consider. 1994 is a very important year, obviously. It sees the redrawing of the political landscape. Six years later, we see the creation of the mega cities like the Johannesburgs, the Etiquanes, Nelson Mandela Bay, City of Cape Town, etc. Um, and these are milestone foundations, and there are many others. Where we've chosen as our stepping off point is the National Development Plan. This is our Talking Transformations podcast's uh, basis for our first episode. The NDP, or the National Development Plan, pulled together a range of political, academic and practical viewpoints and started to direct a vision for transformation that would manifest in a better country for all by 2030. So it was covering a whole range of issues, governance, health, spatial planning and and, and a whole range of elements. It was also the first of the plans of national government to benefit from social social media age. You'll see on our uh, Twitter feed that the, uh, the videos that were created in support of the National Development Plan, very simplistic but very effective communication uh, tools to illustrate the challenges that were facing the city and the aspirations working towards 2030. The videos created in support of NDP still represent, I believe, a masterclass in outlining some of the real challenges and the, the aspects required to deal with spatial, racial and income inequalities. It also started to land squarely the principles of spatial justice, spatial sustainability, equity and other aspects such as these. These would later become the foundational principles on much of the spatial planning legislation that followed. Things like the Spatial Planning and Land Use Management Act and so forth would take its lead from these principles as they had been embedded within the NDP. So yesterday I had the great opportunity to sit and spend some time with Professor Philip Harrison. He was down in Cape Town visiting his family as well as uh, attending a conference through in Somerset West. And I've known Phil for many years, probably for about 15 years or so now. And presently, he's the South African Research Chair uh, in the Spatial Planning and Analysis of the University of Witwatersrand up in Johannesburg. Um, importantly, he has served on the South African National Planning Commission. And as we're talking as a sort of starting point, the whole question of the uh, National Development Plan, I thought it would be really appropriate to speak to Phil about his recollections of that time in the preparation of the plan uh, and some of the successes and perhaps some of the shortcomings of the, the process and the um, achievements to date. He's worked um, as a professor and associate dean at WITS for many years. He's been the executive director at the city of Johannesburg, um, as well as, uh, as I say, playing this role uh, an appointment by the state president as the member of the NPC. So it really seemed like a great idea to start with him and look at some of the, the efforts 
uh, and the challenges in in brokering certain deals in putting together that NDP and it was really fantastic it was a beautiful afternoon it was uh, he had a lot of very interesting ideas particularly for those of us who are working in the professional field right now some messages of perhaps not all is lost and um, words of encouragement to to listen to particularly towards the end of the interview hope you'll find it of interest hope you'll find it of value please let me know what you think So we're here in Cape Town today on a Saturday afternoon, the sun is out and I'm absolutely privileged to have Phil Harrison, Professor Phil Harrison, who's down from Johannesburg for the week. He's been spending some time in Somerset West, if I understand correctly, at the Assandler Institute's conference. And Phil, you're the first person that we've invited in onto the Talking Transformation podcast. So I want to thank you first up for for agreeing to come and have a chat to us. Um, I think in the discussions before uh, that we've had in the lead up to this uh, today, I'd mentioned to you what we've been trying to do is establish a platform for people who are working in professional environments or within community networks who are really trying to understand this whole question of spatial transformation and what it is. And I've invited you here today to have a discussion around the National Development Plan, which to my mind is really one of the foundations of where we're trying to get to as a country with a vision of sort of 2030 time horizon of trying to get some basics and fundamentals in place. So that's what I've, uh, I've actually come down here for. I say many thanks for, for agreeing to spend some time with us. And um, before I, I kick off, is there anything you would like to say as a sort of opening remark? Peter, it's just a great pleasure to be invited um, to this podcast. Um, and, and I think this is a very exciting and important initiative. I mean, we really need to get people talking uh, about these issues, particularly at this moment. We've spent 20 years or so trying to um, achieve spatial transformation. We really need to get it happen, get it to happen. I think well said. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to go back to around 2012. Um, the NDP was launched, as I recall, uh, in 2012. But clearly there was a long lead up in terms of the discussions around it, the establishment of the National Planning uh, Commission. What was your earliest recollection or memories of the discussions on the NDP uh, and then the lead up to your actual appointment? Well, I, I guess I remember the first day, the first commission meeting, we were like nervous uh, school children <laughs> going to class for the first time. Um, and uh, we, we were asked uh, what our contribution would be, but I think um, none of us even had a clear sense of the task ahead, what the role of a national development plan could be, should be. And so it was very difficult to talk about how we might contribute, and there were 23 or 24 of us from, coming from very different walks of life with very, very different um, perspectives. And I, th I think the first substantive discussion was how do you go about putting together a national development plan? And I'm really glad that we didn't get lost in the niceties of, of different methodologies and, and that we came to a very, very simple conclusion. And anyone who's been to planning school will know that it's diagnosis before uh, treatment. Um, and, and, and so that's our very first step was to break up into different working groups to do an in-depth investigation uh, 
in, in terms of what really was wrong with, uh, with the country uh, at that stage, 15 years into democracy. And, and I recall that uh, I was on two working groups, Material Conditions, which was about spatial development, spatial transformation, the environment, infrastructure, and then also governance. And we knew that something was ailing the nation, but what was it? And, and so to get to a point before we even talked about what we're trying to do through the plan, to really understand where we were, I think was, was a very valuable starting point. I think you've touched on some of the, the, the next question I had, which was, you know, in terms of the people you had around that table, there were some very serious players uh, and personalities. You had the current uh, state president, President Ramaphosa, you had the previous finance uh, minister, you had a number, I think, of municipal uh, city managers, people who'd served in that capacity. So a lot of strong personalities. Um, where, where, what were some of the hard discussions and some of those trade-offs that must have taken place during that time? Because I can imagine being a fly on a wall in that space would have been made for very interesting listening. And you were there in the forefront of it. Well, well let me say it was an intensely deliberative process. And, and Trevor Manuel, as chair, was able to provoke wide-ranging discussions. And, and, and um, 23, 24 commissioners, each one seemed to have an opinion on every matter whether it was in their field or not. And so it was an extraordinary experience of dialogue and engagement. And at times I really wondered how this would all come together into the written word, into a plan that has a beginning and an end. Um, I think certainly the, the final deadline uh, given to us by the president did focus the mind and, and something did come together. Um, and, and certainly in these discussions, there, there was a sense of, of the limitations and the possibilities and the trade-offs. I think if we had more time, I think one thing that we, we, we could have done was to be a lot clearer about what some of those trade-offs were in terms of available resources. And we didn't realize that the resources would be even more finite um, than, than we anticipated at that stage. Um, but I think once we came to a point where we were clear that the fundamental task facing the nation was to eliminate poverty and reduce inequality. And what we needed to achieve that was a capable state, active citizens, um, an inclusive economy. Uh, we needed to focus on the capability of citizens. Once we came to, it seems now quite obvious, but it took a lot of engagement to get to that point. Once we get to that point, the priorities began to sort themselves out. So what is it that you need to enable us to address issues of poverty and inequality. And at that point, I think issues of, of education, for example, came to the fore, um, at, at 10 or 11 critical issues, but, but some more important than others. Um, and in, in the discussion, yes, there were trade-offs. I, I recall uh, quite intense discussions around energy, for example, and the nature of the transition away from, from uh, coal-based energy and a lot of debates around how fast that transition should be and what the trade-offs would be in, during that transition um, and, and an understanding that we couldn't suddenly jump from, from coal, for example, to, re, to renewables um, and, and what are the transition energies that we needed to talk about. There's natural gas, there was nuclear and, and a lot of discussion around that. There was debates around fracking at the time, a lot of concerns about the, the cost of, of nuclear. And so that's an example of where 23 people 
with very different perspectives had to reach some sort of commonality in terms of priorities. And, and, and that certainly wasn't easy. Um, I, th I think in the end, some things were left open. I, I, for example, let me just take nuclear energy as an example. What the Commission said at that time was we can't make a decision now around the role of, of nuclear. We don't have to make a decision now around the role of nuclear. We need a proper public debate. We need to debate for the next five years. And there's a point when a decision will have to be made. And as we know, that's one of the examples where, where, where the Commission's recommendations and, and, and what the state was trying to achieve, uh, some tension emerged. And so I think um, asking about trade-offs is exactly the right question. Phil, I mean, I think one of the other things that, I, 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 am I correct in recalling that one of the big assumptions that was factored into the plan was this idea of a 6% economic growth rate over this period? And obviously at the moment we're seeing, what I think, just less than 2%. So I mean, some of those sort of fundamentals of the economic underlying uh, assumptions versus, as you say, some of these trade-offs have also, I think, been one of the, the challenges that we faced. Any thoughts on that? So we were, um, the deliberations were happening around uh, 2010, 2011 into early 2012. Uh, and at that stage, South Africa's economy had bounced back from the global economic recession. Uh, and I, if I recall, was growing at around 3, 3.5. And I, I think it was feasible to imagine at, at, at that stage that um, a 5.5, I think it was 5.5 target um, could be reached. And so, yes, it's true that, that many of the targets in the plan was based on an assumption that we could sustain growth rates of between 5 and, and 6%. What we weren't to know is that uh, subsequent to the release of the plan, there would be a persistent decline in, in our economic growth rates to the current, I think it's around 1% they're projecting now. Um, and and it's, it's, it, it's a lesson because a plan does need to be reviewed. A plan can't be cast in stone. There were certain assumptions underlying that plan. And there are certain questions around what is possible to achieve in terms of the targets for 2030, um, given, given our current realities. And, and, and certainly, we're hoping that at least over the next few years, one could bounce back to 3% growth rate. But, but uh, the 5.5 now seems like a wonderful dream. If only. Yes, if only. So, I mean, it, it's interesting that one of the big players in that space are, would have been the current state president, who in recent weeks has talked about this idea of nine wasted years. His words, not mine. At times though, as a citizen, it's difficult not to concur with some of that sentiment. Nevertheless, what do you think have, if, if any, would have been the, the achievements after almost a, dec a decade almost on from the, uh, the premise of the plan? Uh, what do you think any of the achievements have been? Because I think it's important that we, we reflect on some of that, as opposed to just some of the, at times, the overwhelming sense of, of, of dread about some of the other aspects. Uh, so, Peter, it's not, it's, it's not an easy story here. And there's a particular narrative around failed implementation, and obviously I partly agree with that. Um, and we certainly need to look at the details in particular sectors. And I fear that overall the assessment might be performance below target across a range of sectors, but it doesn't mean that there hasn't been specific progress in particular areas 
um, whether it's competition policy or the national minimum wage or procurement reform or the increase in, in university graduates in engineering and science or the progress with the ocean economy. One could go on. So there's, it's certainly not a case of nothing has happened, but it is a case of what has happened has been disappointing in terms of, of its scope and, and its rate. Um, I think for me, perhaps uh, one of the most important consequences of the National Development Plan was not so much um, particular progress in individual sectors, it was tuning our minds to some of the big issues. So the discourse around the capable state, which emerged from the plan and has been taken up, I think, nationally, I think was a significant achievement. Um, and and I, I recall Trevor Manuel saying recently that if he could do it again, the first chapter in the plan, and in fact most of the plan, would be about the capable state, because that's the fundamental precondition for achieving anything else. And, and so there was a discourse on the capable state, there's a chapter on the capable state, there's a chapter on dealing with corruption, um, and that has had an important impact, I think, even in shaping what, what the current president is doing, and he sat through the five years of the commission, uh, and I'm sure he influenced the commission and the commission influenced him. Sure. And, and so I think um, that is perhaps the biggest impact. And as, you, as, as I said, retrospectively, we could have even made more of it. Mm. But the capable state is fundamental to achieving the developmental state. Well, one of the reasons we've put this podcast together, Phil, is a place to, for people who are working in this space to have a voice, a place to come together and discuss some of these issues in a, an open and uh, completely accessible way. What, 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 what's your sort of message to the professionals and the community groups out there who are tackling some of these issues in terms of what, what is their contribution? What can they do in terms of, what more can they do in terms of working towards the aspirations of the 2030 NDP? I, I think to professionals, um, to, to municipal officials, we, we have to accept that there is really no magic bullet. We're in for the long haul. I'm going to mix my metaphors, but, but uh, a, a, a colleague said to me recently, really it's not the sprint, it's the marathon. And, and so it's really about um, just focusing on what we need to achieve, not this year, not next year. We're going to get frustrated, we're going to feel disappointed, and we might feel as, as though we have failed. But it's, it's keeping one's eye on, on 2030 for the moment, the medium term, and just working incrementally and asking, uh, is, is there something positive through, even if it's a minor action, that would take us some way towards that objective and just continually doing that. It requires persistence and it requires resilience, but there's no other alternative. We're not going to turn around the problems we have now, the institutional problems, the economic problems, the, the political challenges. It's not going to turn around in half a year, in a year, even under President Ramaphosa. Um, and, we've just, and, and the problem is that so much decision-making is short-termism. So much decision-making is tied to political cycles, and I think our role as professionals is, is to supersede the short and the medium term and keep the long term in mind. I really appreciate that. I think it's very valuable insight. 
So we've talked about some fairly serious issues here, Phil, uh, and, it's, and I really appreciate the, the thinking and your reflections on, on that period. There must have been some lighter moments in amongst all this. As I say, personality strong and uh, I'm, I'm sure a very interesting conversation. Can you remember some of the lighter moments in that and can you maybe share some of that with us? Well, it was a serious business, <laughs> but there was a lot of enjoyment as well. And, and I certainly appreciated the leadership of, of Trevor Manuel and Cyril Ramaphosa in terms of creating an environment that, that, um, that, that was positive and that allowed us to engage in a little bit of banter. Um, and and it's, it's not just the jokes and the banter, but also the friendships and the socializing was, was part of lightening up the, the challenging task. Um, a lot of the jokes, I think, were sort of... Um, uh, in-house jokes. <laughs> they might not. not uh, well, no, not so much. You might not understand it. But there was, for example, instead of the elephant in the room, there were a lot of buffaloes in the room. But, but perhaps I shouldn't go too far down that line. But let's leave it there. Thank you, Phil. Phil, you've had a remarkable career. I, I was looking at your your CV earlier today. You really have uh, inspired so many of us in terms of what you've done, both in the practical space as well as the academic and. Um, you know, your, your, your career is, is a testimonial to, to contribution in, in this post-apartheid South Africa. What have been some of the most difficult challenges that you faced in your career? So, I mean, I'm moving away now from the NDP specifics, but I mean, how have you overcome some of those challenges? Because I think one of the, 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 the things that I look at, the next generation of planners and built environment professionals and community activists out there, well, how do they learn from the lessons um, that have gone before? Well, it's quite a, ch a challenging question because all careers have challenges and we have to um, be prepared for that. Um, certainly in my career, for example, I moved um, at various times across from the academic world in, into the world of more direct practice, if you like, particularly into government and then back into into academia and these weren't always easy adjustments. Sure. Um, they're they, 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 worlds that operate with very different uh, modalities. Um, I mean, I, I recall, for example, when I was a very young head of uh, a department in, in an academic department and simply the challenge of being a good administrator of a department, of being a good academic writing and publishing, of being a good teaching, and I found it extraordinarily frustrating. And I didn't feel that I was being good at at, uh, at all of them. Um, in fact, at any of them, trying to be good at all of them. And and so, in fact, I decided to leave. And I might have left planning entirely um, if it wasn't for the fact that someone persuaded me to apply for the job as, as head of planning in the city of Johannesburg, where I met you, Peter. Um, and, and happy days indeed, and there's a lot that I, l I learned from it, but it was also an extremely challenging and exhausting time in my life. Um, and one has to simply build resilience and develop these support networks, which are really important, and um, learn to look after oneself. And there's, there's no easy way just to transpose from one person's career to another. Um, except to understand that it, it, it is going to be challenging. And uh, you need to find the ways to build resilience for the long term as an individual, as a professional. 
I think there's probably another whole podcast, Phil, on the, your time in Johannesburg. It was such an interesting and exciting time. If I remember, it was around the World Cup time and a whole range of different aspects. So maybe that's a, for another conversation for another day. Let's park, park that part. Phil, I have a sense, a personal sense, that we're at a crossroads for a lot of the built environment professionals, where talent is always in short supply, it's always a very uh, marketable uh, element, and I think we're seeing an increasing drain of professionals outside of South Africa to other opportunities that lie uh, further afield. That's my sense. I also get a sense that um, a lot of the uh, requirements around uh, continuous professional development and so forth, particularly within the planning space, is really pushing us into a, a very, very difficult space. I'd be interested to get your sense of whether you agree with me on that. And, um, you know, how does the, you know, between the public, the private sector and the academic, the NGO world, how are we going to maintain the degree of professionalism, skills, the skills required to have a, a, a detailed conversation? And, and ultimately end up with an outcomes-based thinking and approach? You're asking me very tough questions here, Peter. <laughs> uh, I, I do have a... Yes, I think you, you, you are correct. We are at a critical moment. But, of course, if you look back over the last 20, 30 years, we've been at many critical moments. We've been at many crossroads. So I think one has to perhaps be careful about thinking we're at a particularly special moment. But we are at a challenging moment. Um, we... we uh, have um, evolved into a difficult institutional and political environment and I certainly do feel for some of the young graduates from the universities who are going into local government or, or, or even, even into NGOs or community organizations, um, national government and, and going into at this stage is an enormous challenge. There's a generational succession underway. I think those of us who were there in the 1990s, our careers might be sort of moving towards an end, and a new generation is emerging, and that's also quite a challenging period. Um, and so I, I really think that we just have to find ways of building coalitions of professionals. There are a lot of lonely professionals in, in really tough places and they need support and they need relationships and finding ways and, and that's why the Asantla conference that I was at over the past week was it was really important to me because there were officials from the university there were sorry there were academics from the university there were officials from government uh, there were members of NGOs uh, and each panel was composed in a way that you had all these diverse constituencies talking to each other and there were tensions and, uh, but but what, was it, what was really important was to realize that we were all essentially trying to achieve the same thing. And if somehow we could hold hands across um, these different places in which we find ourselves, and I think that's why this podcast is really useful, have conversations um, across the divides, it might help. But n n not to say that, it, that it's easy. It's going to, we're going to have to be adaptive. We're going to have to be experimental. Um, we're going to have to be incremental, we're going to have to do it over the long haul, but we're going to have to find ourselves in the process. Phil, those are p powerful words and, you know, I think it sort of, they're a very nice summary to, to this discussion. From my side, I really want to thank you 
for coming out and spending time away from your family, coming and spending time with us in trying to uh, achieve something different, trying to look at a different angle to this and for helping us. Thanks, Peter. I think uh, it's, it's really a, a wonderful opportunity to engage it right at the beginning of a great experiment. Uh, and I think what we need are many little experiments. And from these experiments, I think the new directions will emerge for the profession. Um, and, and so I look forward to speaking to you again. Con, thank you enough, Phil. Many thanks. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and stay with us here in Cape Town. Get involved, get informed, and most importantly, get subscribed. You can find us on our Twitter feed at Talking Transfo and the number one. That's Talking Transfo One. Talking Transformations music, kindly supplied by Tribal Need. Find them at tribalneed.com.